Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now here's your host. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of All Autism Talk. I'm your host, Richie Plush, and I know it's been a long time since I've been here, but I'm excited to be back. I've been pulled in a lot of different directions with family and some really fun special projects going on at work, but it is great to be back and it was great to come back to an amazing conversation with Rue Lennon and Dr. Becky Thompson. We sat down and had a conversation about person-centered ABA and about a neurodivergent advisory committee that they're spearheading here at Learn Behavioral. Uh, I'm not gonna bury the lead too much. Listen to this podcast twice. Uh, This episode is filled with lots of amazing conversations and perspectives from Rue Lennon and Dr. Becky Thompson. Rue Lennon has been working in the ABA field since April of 2014 with Wisconsin Early Autism Project, also known as WEEP, part of the Learn Behavioral Network of Providers. They have been actively involved in the person-centered ABA team and the Neurodivergent Advisory Committee, which will be discussed regularly in the podcast. They are a non-binary member of the LGBT community and also a member of the autism community and have invested years of their life in the name of advocacy for people to have a safe space to thrive and work in both communities. Dr. Becky Thompson, who's been on our podcast in the past, is a licensed clinical psychologist and a behavior analyst who has been working with children with autism for over 20 years. She is the Director of Clinical Services for WEEP, and she also serves on the Wisconsin Governor's Autism Council and is the current president of the Wisconsin Autism Providers Association. Dr. Becky Rue, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, we're happy to be here. Thank you so much for having us. It's so great to have you on our show. And I I have to start by letting you explain a little bit about yourselves to our audience. So Rue, can you start? Tell us a little bit about you and how you got into ABA. Uh, Yes, um, I am 38. I have been working in ABA uh, for about nine years now. Um, And Honestly, I started I started by chance. I found uh, a job listing when I was um, in a very bad employment space for myself. I was uh, I experienced a lot of ableism, a lot of um, uh, just general maltreatment. And I came across the ad for this job and I was like, you know what? If I can't find respect and meaning here in a company that works with people like me, I don't know where else I'll find it. And um, I just kind of stumbled into it. I love that. Respect and meaning. Those stick out. That's that's very strong. Thank you, Ruin. Dr. Becky, tell us a little bit about you and your experience. You know, I just like that. I'm a little bit clumped. like so warmed my heart. <laughs> just said. Um, so that makes me so proud. And I've enjoyed so much working with Ruin. We've been on a, a few teams together. So we've been working together for a while. Um, so I got started in the field. I've actually kind of been in the field my entire adult life. Um, when I was 18 and starting college and didn't know um, what exactly I wanted to do with my life, uh, my mom was actually uh, admin employee number two for the Wisconsin Early Autism Project Milwaukee office. And she just kept pushing me. She's like, you should do this. You'd be good at this. You really should do this. You'd like it. Um, and so I gave in eventually, and she was right. Uh, so I started off in the office uh, answering phones and showing clients to appointment rooms and filing. Uh, back then, to be a technician, you had to have a year of college credit, 
Uh, so as soon as I had my year of college credit, I started working as a technician in the field and absolutely fell in love right away. Um, this was uh, 2000. And so at that point, um, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of awareness about autism. So that was actually the first time I'd interacted with anybody with autism. And it, hey, there's this little girl and she likes tickles. She likes being picked up and spun in the air. I was like, I got this. This is fun. And was just blown away by the progress uh, that we could make with this, you know, difference that's neurological, but having a an environmental treatment, what an amazing impact it could make for children and families. So I said, okay, now I know what I want to do with my life. I'll go in this direction. Um, so I worked for WEEP all through uh, college as a tech, went off to grad school. Back then, we didn't really know about BCBAs. That wasn't very popular in Wisconsin. So I went to school to get my PhD in clinical psychology, uh, came right back to WEEP and did my postdoc at WEEP. And then we thought, hey, there's this BCBA credential. So then I went back to school and got that credential. And I've been a certified behavior analyst since uh, 2013, so just about 10 years now. Um, so over time, I've been supervising behavioral treatment programs. I used to do diagnostics as well. Uh, now I'm in the role of director of clinical services at WEEP, so I do a lot of training. And then I work with most of the people I supervise are getting their master's degrees, uh, which is a lot of fun. That's great. That's great. Well, you know, again, thank you both for being here. What a wealth of experience between the two of you. And and I know you, you you really have a couple of projects that you're working on right now. And I say projects, that's probably not the right word. Initiatives, I think, might be a little bit better. Um, but there are two, right? The Person-Centered ABA and the Neurodivergent Advisory Committee. Um, and I know that there's connection between the two, but I want to separate them out just to get us started a little bit. So can we start by talking about the Person-Centered ABA? Is that okay for to get us started? Yeah? Great. Person. Sounds great. 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 So, um, so tell us, like, how, how, why does this group have, like, how did this group get started? Where did, where did the, the idea of this come from? Sure. So actually uh, both groups, which they work hand in hand, uh, but we're uh, formed in 2020. And so I, I know that's not a year most of us really like to remember a lot going on that year. But um, besides the stuff I'm not going to talk about health-wise, um, there were a lot of social justice movements happening and gaining momentum at that time. And one of those was the ABA reform movement of a lot of feedback from autistic self-advocates who were bringing up criticisms about ABA. And those that wasn't new information in, in 2020. A lot of the criticisms that we're bringing brought up about our field have been um, discussed for years by self-advocates. But with social media and with all the other context of other movements, um, it really gained a lot of power and momentum. And Myself and a lot of other clinicians um, who've been you know, dedicated our lives to, to ABA love what we do. We're passionate about it. We, you know, see the positive impact it can have, you know. And you really felt it was important to listen to the community that we care about and that we're trying to serve, and to take a moment to self-reflect and hear that feedback and see, you know, are there things that we could do def differently, um, you know, to, to be even better at what we do and, and do a better job and. Uh, and improve. Everyone always has room for improvement. There's always things we could do differently. And uh, so uh, their leadership was really supportive of that. And so our president and uh, chief clinical officer brought together myself and a couple other like-minded clinicians who are really passionate on this topic uh, to create the person-centered ABA team. And uh, they gave us, they kind of charged us with the mission of developing a value statement that would reflect Learn's perspective um, on treatment and supporting neurodiversity and to really kind of get that initiative going across the LEARN network. Um, and out of that then comes the Neuro Neurodiversion Advisory Committee, which I'll 
I'll pass over to Rue, but I just wanted to say that like really quickly in that process um, of researching and listening to people with lived experience and self-reflection, uh, we realized, you know, we're, we're a group of pretty privileged, uh, like, you know, licensed clinicians who are all identify as, as neurotypical, um, developing, you know, policies and statements about neurodiversity and some really important voices were missing in that process. And so we felt that it was incredibly important to be, you know, including the voices that we're trying to show respect for uh, in that process. And so then we, uh, from that, then developed the Neurodivergent Advisory Committee. Um, and Rue, would you like to share a little bit about that as one of our original members of the committee? Sure. Um, yeah, I was approached uh, about joining this task force by Dr. Becky um, sometime in mid or late 2020. Um, and I just thought it sounded like a wonderful, wonderful concept. Um, a really big uh, issue that is very prevalent in the autism community is the fact that a lot of people are speaking for us instead of listening to our own voices. And I I thought it was absolutely important that we had uh, people that were in this profession that were also overlapping in the community. Um, and a lot of what we do is we review um, a lot of materials for both uh, marketing and training materials um, and just to help shape uh, some of the content to be a little bit more uh, sensitive and um, inclusive of autistic uh, and neurodiverse people, um, making sure that things are read a little bit more clearly, were comprehensible for us, and that we avoided uh, language that could be perceived as ableist or harmful. There's a lot to unpack there. Oh, go ahead. There is. I just realized, well, one thing I wanted to add with that, um, that it was really important to us um, as we were setting up these two committees that are really working hand in hand uh, collaboratively, that um, the the responsibility and kind of labor of putting materials and, and training and things together was on the person-centered ABA team. You know, as the as the group in a position of privilege, you know, it was really important to us that we weren't, you know, asking the neurodivergent advisory committee to like educate us and, and do the work for us. And so we have this, you know, really nice balance where the person-centered ABA team develops develops materials, whether that's trainings or resources and then share it with the Neurodivergent Advisory Committee to get feedback. And so there's a lot of collaboration and back and forth, uh, but intentionally, we're really trying to put that burden and effort um, you know, on the person-centered ABA team out of those two, how they work together. That's great. I, I mean, I have so many questions. I love the way you both just laid that out for us. I think that's really important for us to know that one of the things that just stood out to me the most was just listening to the community and listening to each other. I imagine that you both have had some really interesting conversations with people who are neurodivergent, with people within our organization, with people in the community as whole. Well, tell us a little bit about some of those conversations you've been having and maybe a couple of examples of things that stood out to you. I would say probably pretty early on. Um, I started uh, with WEEP in about uh, 2014. And, and at that time, uh, we actually didn't have a, a lot of terrible interaction with each other at that point. When we first started, um, we uh, it was all in-home services. Um, techs usually did not overlap each other. So we really didn't interact with each other for quite a while until uh, uh, clinical treatment started becoming more uh, regular. Um, and we started having um, techs actually getting to know each other and meeting each other and interacting with uh, our teams, our fellow clinicians and um, other clients besides our own. 
And um, I think that was uh, was a big step because um, it, it's it's a very odd experience to be in a profession where for something that's considered so personal to not really be involved with a lot of your a lot of your coworkers. Right. Um, and when I first started, that was the very first experience I had had with a good, healthy and um, um, listening profession that actually really truly cared and didn't just give lip service that they actually really cared about uh their neurodivergent clients and their and their workers rue can you tell us a little bit more about that what were ways that they showed you that they cared as opposed to just providing lip service um i would probably say one of the biggest ones was um about a year in um i was a person that as i said i had had really no guide in point. Uh, most of the workplaces I'd been in had been, you know, relatively toxic. They had not been uh, good communicative. They were not flexible. They didn't really work with me. And when this one, when I came here, um, that was about a year in was when I joined a team and I had misspoken and said something that may have not been a social, a socially appropriate. And instead of being demeaned and yelled at and reprimanded or even fired, which I honestly thought was going to happen. Um, I was brought in to talk with my supervisor and HR and basically be like, what is something that we can do to support you? And what are some questions you have? And that was a really big part of the first few years um, of me being here. Um, it was a very different experience to feel like if I did something incorrect, that I wasn't going to be reprimanded for it rather than being taught and and educated, um, which is pretty much what we do with our clients. We're not here to demean them or to change them. We're here to just help them and support them to be more independent in the world and system that we have available. I like that example of, uh, it sounds like a little bit of psychological safety, right? You had a little bit of a an ability to reach out to your your team and say, I need help, or for them to recognize that and offer it to you. I think that- Yes, yes, yes. That goes back to what you were saying before about uh, respect and meaning in your work, right? Yeah, they would give me open floor to communicate. um, If I, they would try to be flexible in what communication style was best for me. Uh, When I first started, I also had severe hearing problems and had to have ear surgery. So they would give me support back when we used to have more comp, uh, more uh, in-person team meetings uh, to make sure that I was being heard, but I was also following social protocols in order to let others speak. And it really, really helped uh, shape me in a professional environment and just in life, really. Yeah. One of the parallels I'm noticing is as you're describing the shift from in-home services to in-clinic services, there was an increase in uh, social opportunities and expectations for your for your clients, but also you felt that same yes. pressures but opportunity at the same time, right? That shift being around others and having more complicated social networks. Absolutely. Um, when I first started, when I started, um, I'd say in the last, uh, my last client that I had that I finished with right about when the pandemic started in 2020, um, I also had a really hard time with wearing masks. It was a very uh, sensory difficulty for me. And I actually did the program with my clients. And I've done that with a few. Um, I've actually participated in programs alongside them um, for um, tolerance programs that were difficult for me. 
And I think that was a really, a really big change in, um, cause I feel like even when you're part of a community, there's always some level of internal personal bias, um, for people of color within the color community, people that are queer within the queer community and people that are disabled within the disabled community. And I think that really helped, um, bring a new level of understanding of, um, that we, that myself and the people I'm working with are people and they deserve that, uh, that um, unique and tailored respect and treatment for themselves so that they can engage just as much as anyone else. And I would just add uh, to that as well, both sides of just the benefits that you've brought to your teams, Ruin, that we've had a couple of clients over the years that we've worked together with and had a really nice long um, time working together during COVID uh, remotely with with one of the learners that we were working on the mass tolerance on together. And I know I just remember appreciating so much uh, in, in that work of, you know, a rule of your observations of that client and how much, you know, you contributed to the clinical team of ideas and observations of supports that client could need of uh, goals that maybe he wasn't making the progress we were hoping for, how we could adjust our teaching strategies, what might work better for him or catching things that, you know, myself or the other supervisor who are neurotypical might have been missing. And it was really just an amazing collaboration that brought together kind of the best of everything for, for this young man to really be really successful, trying to integrate to school in the midst of COVID uh, with, with lots of other barriers that were out of our control. And um, so I think that was just a huge learning opportunity for me of, of the value of really listening to someone who who is neurodivergent and who understands things and experiences things that, that I don't and how that can really benefit our clients. Um, and how just it's all it's additive and multiplicative, like bringing in more versus saying like, oh, I don't want to listen to that. I don't want to hear that. Let's listen to everything. And we might do something even better and more magical. So Cruz um, made some really amazing contributions to her clinical teams. It, you know, Rue, I'm hearing from from Dr. Becky and just from what you're describing that in some ways, over the course of your career, you've really shifted into, I don't have the right word for it, but almost an advocacy role, right? Advocating and really speaking on yes. behalf of others in the community. Is that something that you recognized or is that something you just kind of tiptoed into the water a little bit and next thing you do, you were all the way in? Yes. Um, I think that goes into hand in hand that when I first started this job, I did not have uh, nearly as many um, social and professional um, interpersonal skills as I do now. Um, I also didn't have nearly as much of like self-confidence and self-worth um, as I feel like I did now. And um, I feel like being part of this job really put in perspective that really gave me a lot of that value uh, that we also give to our clients, making us understand that our our faults our our faults are okay, our mistakes are okay, um, our shortcomings are okay, and can still be improved and be accepted as we are, and that we are worth that time and attention to help us grow. Um, and I honestly don't think I would be as independent and self-advocate for myself, let alone anyone else, um, without my time there. So well said. Uh, I feel like that should be, we should end there. We're not going to, but like that clip was, uh, in- incredible. I-, I appreciate that. Um, Thank you. um, Dr. Becky, I want to come to you for a second. There's something you mentioned uh, a couple minutes ago 
and I want to revisit it. Um, and I'm going to paraphrase as best I can, but essentially what you were saying is the person uh, who has the privilege needs to own their own education and their and their own ability uh, to understand and ask questions and, and things along those nature. Uh, or, uh, can you explain more of that for us a little bit? Sure. Um, I really got into listening to podcasts during, during the pandemic. Uh, I had never listened to a podcast before 2020 and was listening to a lot of for educating myself and being a, a mentor to a lot of uh, you know younger trainees. And so in, in particular, listening to a, a lot of feedback around um, neurodiversity and, and ABA. And then even without, in addition to that, of um, you know diversity, equity, inclusion as well, and, and the other social justice movements going on. And um, that was really a recurring theme that I've, I've heard more often around um, with uh, people of color of saying, like, okay, well, we've got white people pretty much saying like, yeah, well, tell me what I should do different and really putting that responsibility on a minority group that's disenfranchised to educate us and tell us what we should do or how to fix things. When really, if we're the ones in privilege in that situation, it really is our responsibility to educate ourselves. The information is out there. There, you know, there is such a thing as Google and the internet where you can get a really easy access to lived experience and certainly to ask questions and that it's you know appropriate, but that we shouldn't expect an answer. Um, you know, we're in a position of privilege. We shouldn't expect that I could, that I should say, hey, Rue, tell me all about being autistic. And that one, that she owes me any of that information <laughs> or that it's, you know, her responsibility to educate me that, you know, it, it I'm, um, I, I'm being privileged. You know, she, she's privileging me if she's sharing that information for, for me to learn. And so to be really respectful in asking questions and listening, but to be sure that we're the ones kind of doing that work when we're trying to work on self-improvement and self-change. Yeah, I like that. The ownership is on the learner in some ways in this situation. But I, I think that's that's good for all of us, right? Recognizing that there's a deficit that we may have and being able to have the uh, ability to pause and say, this is an area where I'm not communicating appropriately or I don't understand very well. I need to own my own role in, in fixing and being part of the change, right? That's really what, what I'm Absolutely. Hearing. Ruba, go ahead. You were going to say more on that. Oh, I said absolutely. I mean, and I think that just goes all the way across the board, like Dr. Becky said, um, uh, with um, people that are people of color, um, people who are queer, people who are um, non-abled-bodied, people who are part of all different kinds of marginalized or minority groups, that um, a sense of that we want change, but this feeling that... Um, it is our responsibility to tell people uh, what we need. And I feel like to a degree, uh, maybe it is because, you know, without us, the information will never be out there. But the obligation of knowing that it is not always our responsibility, not solely our responsibility, uh, is definitely something that should be um, recognized and acknowledged. And I really appreciate, Rue, that earlier you had mentioned about um, you're not being lip service. And that was something that was so important to us. And with the person-centered ABA team and developing the Neurodivergent Advisory Committee is we really wanted to protect against you know any tokenism. of like, oh, well, we ran this by a couple people who say they're autistic, so we can check that box and we're good to go. Um, we wanted to be sure that it was really a sincere listening and collaboration process and that we were working together and taking that seriously. Um, and that was a big part of why the Neurodiversion Advisory Committee is is made up of LEARN employees, um, which is also something I'm really proud of, that we have all these people who are already working with us that are neurodivergent, you know, just period, full stop right there. 
Uh, and then secondly, that you know, so many people um, in that community were willing to participate in this group and, and support this effort. Um, so that way we're sure that everyone's you know, paid for their time and for their contributions and that everyone's really feeling valued and respected in that process. And honestly, I think that's one of the biggest parts of uh, ADA's reform and the change that we're putting forward is that I feel like that's something that's been missing for a very long time. Um, I've known people who have who have uh, had family or people that themselves were involved in ADA when they were a child and have suffered um, anywhere from minor indignities to real trauma from that experience, from the lack of care and sensitivity and um, personal care that we're trying to put into it now. And that I think the missing piece was having people that are part of the community also be so driven that we want to be part of that change. I know there's a lot of people that are in this field or related fields that I've known that have said the same thing, that they are um, I want to be part of making ABA better, making it safer, healthier, and more impactful without harm. So can you both tell us uh, a little bit, we talked about these, both of these groups a little bit, right? But I want to hear more about what are some of the accomplishments? What are some of the things that the groups are working on? Or what are some of the focus areas that are being discussed in your meetings? Sure. Well, I'd say like our, our first and kind of you know, biggest accomplishment was the value statement that we worked on and finally and finally completed in November of 2021, uh, which was, uh, and I'll be really eager to hear Ruth's take on this as well. I think that was the, the kind of first real hill to, to uh, achievement and to scale that really we knew this value statement would then be the backbone, you know, of all the trainings and resources we'd provide later on. And so that was a, a long process of many months. And that was a lot of back and forth with the person-centered ABA team and neurodivergent advisory committee that we had, you know, multiple joint meetings and independent meetings of let's all look at the draft together. Okay, let's go away. Think about it uh, independently. Let's come back. Um, and we, we joke a little bit about the level of wordsmithing within the person-centered ABA team that we might have a 10-minute conversation about and versus or and, you know, which word exactly it should be. Uh, but I think it was it was well worth the time and and uh, the blood, sweat, and tears that all went into developing that statement, because uh, in the end we we wanted to be sure that as closely as possible that those words could really match the intent, and you knowing it would never be perfect, but really wanting to um, be sure that it was very intentional and thorough and sending the message that we wanted to use, and it's meant to be both internal and external that that's a document to guide our clinical practices. Um, and even even within operations of our, you know, our marketing is involved in human resources of recruiting technicians and you know intake and how we interact and talk to families. So it really does touch every aspect of our practice. And um, so we're really proud of that accomplishment and that lots of things have kind of trickled down from there. And if, Aru, if you want to share a little bit about that experience and what it was like developing the value statement? Uh, yeah, the value statement was, uh, like Dr. Becky said, was our first uh, big project, uh, our our... Uh, first baby, so to speak. And it was, I agree, it was very important uh, because the neurodiversity um, value statement uh, was what we were centering everything else on. So once we had that set um, and we um, made sure that it included all walks of life to include our diversity statement. So it goes everywhere from personal needs, it goes to health needs. It also comes into identity, 
uh, such as gender or queer identity or um, any other part of their personality and self um, would be valued. And um, it was, I personally think that's very, very important, especially when you're dealing with people who are already marginalized for being uh, disabled and especially for people who have may have it overlapping um, identities, people who may be uh, BIPOC people that are neurodiverse, people that are queer and neurodiverse, uh, people that are um, that have less economic advantages and other uh, such thing that could that's all that's also putting them um, at a risk for um, being devalued by uh, society and the people that are around them and working with them. And uh, one thing I wanted to add, I was thinking about, but it was a huge contribution of the Neurodivergent Advisory Committee to the value statement was um, that it came up with a suggestion of, well, we should have a visual representation for each item of the statement. So originally we, we did in that process also work on a logo for, for our initiative of the Learn Values Neurodiversity logo, but then also a visual icon for, you know, all uh, five components of the statement, which, which was more back and forth of, okay, what, what exactly, what represents safety? what represents dignity, what represents effectiveness, um, which was a fun process. I think something we're just really proud of that document. It sounds like a, it sounds like a really engaging process and one that took time, but I'm glad that you spent the time getting into the details of it, right? And versus or could mean someone's included or not, right? And, mm -hmm. and it, you're, you're having some of these conversations. It's almost like you have to lay the foundation so that everyone has the same uh, the same, the commonplace, if you will, to to branch off and to do uh, other conversations and have other documents and other uh, initiatives and things like that. I mean, is that was that? Did you realize that at the time that that was what you were doing, or was it something after the fact? You're like, oh yeah, well, we spent a lot of time on this and we didn't realize the the full significance of it just yet. I feel like maybe there might have been at least some significance that maybe we didn't realize quite how impactful it was, but I think we always knew it was going to be impactful. Um, as each project goes forward, uh, we're always branching off into uh, new material that should also be included and placed uh, placed in. Uh, so a lot of our a lot of our discussions are usually involving um, how does this sentence sound? This sentence might sound like we're not including all autistic voices, or this statement might make it seem like we're talking about compliance rather than understanding, and that can be a big difference. Um, we are also in the process of working on materials to uh, for training materials to start with the top up for supervisors. Uh, so that would be people that are above me and up. And then um, um, make sure that everyone all the way down has this, uh, because I feel like there's a lot of things that are for for people who work with neurodiverse people where, um, the obvious is not always obvious and um, dealing with a lot of those fine details, I think, help shape our technicians and do uh, better workers to serve our clients, um, whether it be um, even just a slight change of words of saying, um, instead of saying, that's no big deal, someone saying it's going to be okay, because that makes a big impact. And I think those are a lot of the little details that we usually work on from meeting to meeting. Yeah, that's huge. I literally just got chills when he said that rule of like the how different does that feel if you're upset about something and someone says to you, oh, it's no big deal versus someone saying it's going to be OK. Like the love and the care in that statement and how, you know, on, it, 
when when people used to say it's no big deal was with the intention of supporting someone to kind of mm-hmm. get to a better place but how dismissive that was you know unintentionally especially especially since you know 2020 because i feel like when when 2020 came and you know obviously there was a huge shakeup of all different professions and workplaces everything from retail to food service all the way to professionalism in healthcare and law um, that there was a big shakeup and a big hole for a lot of workers. And because of that, that brought in a whole lot of new people into this field and other fields that may never have actually entered this field. And so I think it's even more important that we're giving the support to them so that they can make sure that they are um, supporting our clients as best as they can, as well as um, their, uh, the people around them. Because if they've never entered this field, these may be things that they've never really been exposed to. And I don't think that, um, I feel it's, um, ignorance come from lack of knowledge. And if we don't teach them, how will they know? Yeah, absolutely. And with, so the the value statement really was that foundation. And like, I think we kind of knew it was going to be the foundation. So it was okay to spend more time on it, but it even so was kind of even more we go back to it even more than I think we ever anticipated we would, that it's really the guiding lights for, for everything that we're doing. Yeah. Um, and so since then, um, we've had an you know, internal um, continuing education event for our behavior analysts that learned to originally present the statement. And then we have uh, monthly trainings that we present. And that's what Rue was referring to of supervisors. I, I, I hate to use the term above you, so we have to come up with a different term than yeah. Matt. But so people that supervise you, um, yeah. those licensed professionals, and so we have trainings targeted to, to that group, uh, which every month uh, there's some content related to person-centered ABA to help people put this into practice. And, and I think that is something that's so important that values, you know, values aren't just something you write down or words you post on a website. It, it's actions that, it, the actions that you take that really demonstrate that you're living those values. And that's something that we're trying really hard to do. Yeah, it's not something you put on a sticky note and then just forget about and leave it. It's written down and leave it. You have to revisit it. You know, Rue, you you mentioned. Uh, I agree with Dr. Becky, right? You mentioned above and you know, above you or below you, and those other things. Yeah. Right? Um, <laughs> but I'm curious. Um, I mean, this is bigger than just you and Dr. Becky and the work that you both are doing. This is bigger. This is this is impacting a lot of different people in in, in the community as a whole. How um, are there ways that this is being brought to other people in the community? Is this being brought outside of your organization? Um, to my knowledge, I know that our uh, value statement is public. I am not aware of it uh, going too far out of our organization. Um, I do know that me and Dr. Becky uh, will also be presenting um, about this material. We will be presenting at uh, the Autism Conference um, in Green Bay, um, and that'll be next weekend, uh, where we will be talking about both uh, the person-centered ABA, which is what um, a lot of our uh, advisory committee will be working on, and also uh, the concept of assent or a consent uh, in our uh, in our field. Yeah, and those are really excited about. So I think that's going to be our first um, presentation kind of outside of the ABA community. Um, in, in 2022, members of the person-centered ABA team were able to present at a couple of different ABA conferences uh, on this so at the um, CASP, which is the Council for um, Autism Service Providers, at their conference, we did a presentation. And uh, Rue and I are in Wisconsin. So the um, WISABA is our local ABA association. We, um, I shared the information with them. Uh, we were able to take it to BABA, which was really exciting. Uh, Black Applied Behavior Analysts uh, last summer 
And uh, I think then last fall, uh, some other colleagues presented it at Babbitt is the Massachusetts uh, ABA Association. So we kind of have done a little bit of our, the circuit uh, for different ABA conferences, and we're really excited uh, next weekend to take it to the Autism Society Conference for Greater Wisconsin and then and share it with, with the autism community, but out, you know, outside of ABA, which will be a really different audience for the presentation. I love this. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's important that we have these conversations, but it's also important that we don't keep them a secret. You know, I, I, sometimes I worry that it's, we're, we're kind of all huddled together. We're having this great conversation that's, you know, uh, life altering for some people. And then we just kind of keep it and it's like, no, let's not put this in, and tuck it away. We have to share it and bring it out. And so uh, I'm really excited. Uh, I imagine you are both as well, but what's one thing you're looking forward to? I think Dr. Rebecca, you kind of mentioned that bringing this to a larger community, what's something else you're looking forward to in bringing this to this next conference? Sure. Uh, well, I, I look forward to the conference every year. We usually have, um, I, I presented a number of times, usually we have someone from We Present. Um, WEAP has a really great relationship with the Autism Society. Um, I'm really excited to see to see Rue shine. Uh, so besides our presentation, we have going to going together. Um, Rue got an invitation to uh, be a part of a panel. So I, I love Rue. We want to share a little bit about the panel that you got invited to participate in. Uh, yes, I will be participating in a, a panel consisting of neurodiverse people such as myself, and we will be talking about um, more specifically our experiences as neurodiverse people and in employment. Um, so both uh, in the profession I'm in now and just in general, uh, the experience of neurodiverse people um, in the job market and employee market, which um, unfortunately has not always been very kind. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I mean, going to be so valued knowing uh, knowing the, the um, folks who attend the you know Autism Society Conference. It is such a diverse group of there's there's self-advocates, there's families and parents, there's educators, there's speech-language pathologists. It's, it's really broad. There are BCBs there as well, but it really is kind of everyone who's um, somehow you know involved with the autism community. And as you said, like employment is, is such a big issue and such a challenge people face. Uh, I think it's going to be so valued and really um, inspirational for you know for, for adults and for, and for parents of children. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'm so excited for that. Yes, I've been seeing, um, I, I, I'm very excited about, um, like you said, you know, uh, all these great advancements, but not keeping them a secret. Um, I feel like it's almost like we would be uh, gatekeeping progress from like the rest of the community. And um, it's definitely something that the community desperately needs. Um, the image of ABA and just autism services in general have unfortunately had uh, a, a very, very dark, uh, tattered history for way, way too long. Um, and I feel privileged to be part of it because um, until now, it's, some, it's something that I don't think I really ever um, took the time to understand or read about. Um, I felt like, um, I feel like even within a community, there are certain experiences uh, that you can't really share across. So like, yes, I'm an autistic individual, but I'm not a person who's experienced ABA firsthand myself um, as a child, um, and obviously, uh, you know, when we when they receive it, they're often um, very, very young, and a lot of time changes, um, and a lot of changes uh, in just society and um, medical treatment um, and what's considered a standard and what's considered ethical. Uh, obviously, changes constantly over time, and I think. 
um, it's really important for us to have some neurodiverse voices that are actually behind the scenes, actually working in this profession to share and uh, um, convey how it's changing. Uh, it's changing every day. We're um, we're creating more value on their own personal self, their autonomy, um, and including uh, their needs and their desires as part of this treatment, just like anybody else would be uh, that would be seeking uh, mental health care today. Yeah, and, uh, and one thing I want to add that I was thinking about is in these presentations, uh, in particular this one, like we are intentionally taking a really humble approach of sharing, here's what we've done. Like we're, we're kind of figuring this out as we go. Uh, so we're certainly not saying, you know, this is the best way or the only way to listen to feedback and incorporate that feedback and support inclusion, but just saying here's a way, you know, that that we've found that's working so far. And I think it'll be an interesting conversation to see if we get other ideas or suggestions from the audience too, um, kind of sharing with different people and getting more ideas of how could we, you know, make this effort even stronger and, and continue to move forward. I hope so, because if there's anything that this job has taught me, there is no such thing as only one way to do something. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> well, I, I have to say on behalf of uh, so many people, thank you for the work that you're doing and thank you for bringing this to not just learn but uh, and and weep, but to the community as a whole and, and to those around us. I think, again, I appreciate you not being the gatekeepers of the information and uh, congratulations on the invitation. I think that's, that's very uh, commendable given all the work that you've done and all that you've overcome. And I think it's uh, it shows all the hard work that you're doing is being heard. And so I appreciate you both and the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You know, thanks for the opportunity. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> I hope you took as much away from that conversation as I did with Rue and Dr. Becky. Uh, really... One of the things that sticks out to me is this conversation was um, sort of a glimpse into what's happening in society. The shift of people starting to take on more ownership of their learning and have more ownership of their uh, of their listening. And there's this evolution happening both in the autism community, in the LGBT community, but also in just society as a whole. And I think we're better because of it. And I think the communities are benefiting because of it. A couple of things were said um, throughout this that stood out to me, um, both during our conversations and afterwards, where we were talking with our producer for a little while afterwards. Um, you know, the, the ownership of learning is on the person from privilege, and the obvious is not always obvious. And, and the more we take time to learn and try to understand and see the world from someone else's perspective, the better we're going to be at being allies and advocates to those who are a part of those communities. And just a special thank you to Dr. Becky and Rue for modeling both the advocacy and also the allyship. And I think it's very evident in their relationship that um, that that's happening for them and we are better uh, because of that. As always, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Therapies. And if you have a show suggestion or other feedback for us, please send us a message on our website at allautismtalk.com. And feel free to subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care.
We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.